0: beginnings of modern liberal Protestantism can probably be dated from the early 19th century the German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher and as a matter of fact the roots of modern liberal religion remain in Germany through much of the 19th century and the crisis that will occur in Germany which will then reverberate throughout the rest of the Christian world is primarily a crisis having to do with the history of Christianity and particularly of course having to do with the historical origins of Christianity in the scriptures. We were talking in the first lecture about the fact that obviously people living in earlier times thought of themselves as living in the present. We also talked about the fact that in earlier times the tendency was to minimize the differences between the past and the present to see them in some kind of continuity. It's been pointed out for example that you might look at a 15th century painting of a biblical scene and the people in the picture are dressed as though they were living in the 15th century. Maybe the artist did it deliberately but it's also quite likely that he just didn't know how people may have dressed in biblical times and he had no sense that it was very different from his own age. There begins to develop in the Enlightenment, and it comes to fruition in the early 19th century, what comes to be called historical consciousness. And historical consciousness has different meanings, but it obviously means in its most basic sense a consciousness of history, an awareness of history, and that means also then an awareness of change, an awareness of fact that things do not remain the same. The first great philosopher of history is in the early 19th century, the German George William Friedrich Hegel. Prior to that time, I think most philosophers didn't really think that you could philosophize about history because history has to do with change and philosophy has to do with what is permanent. But this again is one of the characteristics of radical modernity in the 19th century that the fact of change, the fact of historical development is playing more and more of a crucial role, a central role in people's thinking. As early as the 1830s there was a German theologian named Friedrich Strauss who wrote a book with the deceptively simple title which has been used over and over and over again, Life of Jesus. But rather than its being a pious, edifying, inspiring work like most lives of Jesus have probably been Strauss was what we would call a debunking work or what would later be called a demythologizing work designed to argue that the historical Jesus as he is portrayed in the gospels is a shadowy figure about whom we really don't know very much the gospels cannot be regarded as accurate historical narratives They probably were composed later, sometime after the time of Jesus. They reflect the thinking, the recollections, the dreams of his later followers. And therefore Christianity does not rest upon a solid historical foundation. Now this was a claim of enormous importance and a very destructive one. Precisely because Christianity, unlike some religions, does claim to be a historical religion. That is to say, it claims to be derived from a particular person who lived at a particular time in history, in a particular place, which can be dated quite precisely. You have the line in one of the gospels, in the 15th year of the reign of the Caesar Tiberius, the word of the Lord came to John in the desert which can be dated precisely as the year 2930. The Christian church had always claimed that the events on which it was founded had really happened. And that the incarnation, the Son of God entering the human world, becoming man, meant that the eternal Son of God entered the world of time and history. Now there are some religions which are unhistorical and even anti-historical like Buddhism and Hinduism which are trying to help people to escape from history. But Christianity along with Judaism is a great historical religion and if one claims that its historical foundations are not there, that the historical foundations are unreliable, then the religion itself is to a very considerable extent discredited. Germany tended to lead the world in terms of scholarship and education in the course of the 19th century for reasons too complicated to go into here. The German universities were commonly regarded as the best universities in the world. And the Germans were very much in love with the idea of science. Science was one of the great watchwords of the 19th century. We talked briefly about how that word underwent a change in the 17th century till it comes to be restricted primarily to the physical sciences and where anything that is speculative like theology or philosophy ceases to be called science that is it ceases to be called knowledge. However there's an attempt in the 19th century to recover the use of the word for subjects other than the physical sciences Literary studies, for example, historical studies, for example, but to do so by imitating the methods of the scientists, the physical scientists, so that these other disciplines sort of surrender whatever independence they have of their own, very humbly go to school, as it were, under the physical scientists. Now, that meant, for one thing, as a starting point, that anything that has to do with a text, a poem, a historical narrative or the Bible. One begins by carefully analyzing the text, the paper, the ink, try to figure out how old it is, see if there are different variations of it, try to figure out where it might have come from, things which it was thought could be done scientifically. And uh, this was what the Germans dubbed the lower criticism because it had to do with uh, the text themselves, pieces of paper, the ink, all that kind of thing and the task of the lower criticism was to try to establish what was the actual original text of the document and to go back and find the earliest versions of it, the ones that could be deemed most reliable and to say these are the ones we should follow even if maybe they disagree in some ways with the versions we're accustomed to using. This had the most explosive effect in biblical studies but it had explosive effects in a lot of other ways as well, debunking old legends about kings and uh, things of that kind. The higher criticism then, as the Germans coined the term, was a sophisticated, in their view, historical and philological reflection on these documents. Trying to understand the historical context in which they arose. What certain words or symbols would have meant in the context of their time. Cultural relativism again, becoming acutely aware of how these things might differ from one culture to another. How would these words have sounded to a Jew of the first century as compared with how they might sound to a German of the 19th century? and the higher criticism often allowed a very free-ranging speculation arguing that there were various agendas and rival schools and so forth and so on that had gone into the production of the Bible. Well as I say this originates in Germany but it begins to spread elsewhere. It was something that frightened Cardinal Newman greatly and even when he was still an Anglican Uh, He talked about how he could see at that time small cloud of German historical criticism and how it could undermine the very basis of Christianity itself. And Newman never showed any sympathy for this and it's another obvious way in which he can't be considered to be a liberal. Now the modernist movement in the Catholic church will be primarily French in nature. And it's been pointed out rather anomalously that although the Germans were ahead of everybody else in terms of their radical theologizing, mostly Protestants, and uh, although we had the figure of Dollinger who actually left the church, there is no German of any consequence with one partial exception who can be considered a real modernist or who played a significant role in the movement. And that's sort of an oddity of history which has not been altogether adequately explained. Modernism essentially begins with a French priest whose name is Alfred Wazy. Alfred Wazy had a conventional Catholic upbringing of a Frenchman of that era. His father wasn't particularly pious but his mother was very pious. He was raised in a pious household therefore, was very smart, decided at a fairly early age to become a priest, was sent off to the local diocesan seminary, did brilliantly was eventually ordained and was sent to Paris for advanced study at the Catholic Institute which was an institute for advanced Catholic studies which had been founded in Paris because the universities were all in the hands of the secularists but while he was there in the 1880s Loisy went to hear lectures by a professor at the Sorbonne, the great French University whose name was Ernest Renan And Renan also had written A Life of Jesus in which Renan uh, essentially made many of the same points that had been made by Strauss 50 years before. Renan's Life of Jesus could be seen almost in a sense as a French version of what had been going on in Germany for quite a while. Renan had himself at one time been a seminarian, but he had lost his faith and had now become a skeptic and was for the most part quite hostile to the church. Well Loisy, as a young priest was bowled over by Renan's lectures and he concluded that the conventional view of the Bible that it was an accurate absolutely correct historical account of Jesus and of Jesus life on earth and of his teachings was simply not tenable. We talked briefly about the crisis conflict between science and religion which begins in the 17th century with the conflict over the heliocentric theory of the universe and as we'll see that conflict does play a role in modernism but I think that more serious than the conflict between science and religion in explaining modernism is the conflict between history and religion and that is to say it's the problem of change which as I talked about in the previous lecture Newman addressed himself and it's a fundamentally simple issue but an extraordinarily difficult one to resolve the teachings of the church are unchanging the church represents eternal truths if the church did not represent eternal truths how could it then claim to be teaching us about God who is himself eternal and unchanging At the same time we recognize that if you were to take a picture of the church at various points in its history those pictures would not be identical. What the church looked like in the 12th century is quite different from what it looked like in the 2nd century and what it looked like in the 19th century quite different from what it looked like in the 13th in a number of different ways. So how does one deal with this? As I say this was the central question that Newman dealt with in his essay on the development of doctrine and his solution which we talked about briefly is the one which I think most orthodox Catholics in modern times have subscribed to. Loisie it appears was bowled over by what he heard from Ernest Renan, and the conclusions he drew were that the later developments of Christianity were in fact not authentic developments of what was present already in the scripture that these later developments were essentially innovations, changes that were influenced by the historical period or the cultural period in which they occurred. I have mentioned before the idea of cultural relativism. Cultural relativism can be of two kinds. It can be what you might call horizontal meaning cultures living side by side with one another all at the same period of time. But very different from one another, or it could be what we might call vertical in the sense that our ancestors are different than we are and their culture is different from our culture. And it was the latter that preoccupied Alfred Loisy. Now, Loisy also uh, read, he did not know personally. The man who was the most influential Protestant theologian of the end of the 19th century, a German by the name of Adolf Harnack, and Adolf Harnack wrote a very influential work called The History of Dogma. And Harnack's History of Dogma was essentially, you might say, historical consciousness run wild. Harnack insisted that the official teachings of Christianity as they unfolded the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all the great doctrinal statements that came out of the early councils of the church and so forth, the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, and so on, to say nothing of specifically Catholic things like the seven sacraments or papal authority. None of these things, Harnack said, had any root in the New Testament at all. None of them are present in the teachings of Jesus. Harnack reads the New Testament and concludes that Jesus was a sort of a moral teacher he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ who had come to transform the world by his teaching and who believed that he would transform the world by his teaching this is the kingdom to which Jesus so often refers in the New Testament and that as Harnack put it in a rather something like a quip he said Jesus taught the coming of the kingdom and instead we got the church. In other words he said the pure spiritualized teachings of Jesus not long after his death became institutionalized. They became formulated in doctrines. The church organized, his followers organized themselves into an organization and then they essentially articulated ideas that they claimed were from Jesus but which in fact were not. And Harnack was in a sense an arch Protestant here in that Luther too as you recall had said the Catholic Church has gotten very far away from the New Testament and our task is to go back to the New Testament. Harnack says but the Protestants have done that also because the Protestants also subscribe to things like the Nicene Creed. They also subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity. They also see Jesus as divine which Harnack thought was the biggest misconception. Uh, Harnack is kind of the ultimate liberal Protestant if we understand the teachings of Jesus to be one of moral exhortation and that was his original purpose then we can recover the purity of his vision. I might just mention as an aside Everyone is familiar with the heroic work in Africa of Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who was remembered as the great humanitarian missionary. Around the year 1900, Albert Schweitzer was actually an important theologian in Germany. And uh, he wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus in which he basically threw up his hands and says, well, we can't find the historical Jesus. We don't really know who he was, so let's stop pursuing the issue which is kind of an extreme form of liberal Protestantism again, and then Schweitzer says, all we can do is try to live as Jesus might have wanted us to live, so I'm off to Africa to treat the sick. Whereas Wazi had been very much taken with Renan's lectures and essentially accepted the argument that the later teachings of the church were not to be found in the Bible, he thought Harnack had made a big mistake in saying that we should go back to the Bible and sort of cancel out everything that's happened over the centuries because Wazi's way of dealing with historical change was to welcome it and to say that just about any change that takes place is a valid one it will reflect the authentic spirit of the time in which it takes place Harnack like all Protestants had rejected the Catholic doctrine of tradition now the Catholic doctrine of tradition holds that there are teachings which are part of the authentic original teachings of Jesus but which may not be explicitly stated in the New Testament but the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the church protects the church from error if it proclaims certain teachings as part of its tradition. This to the Protestants was totally unacceptable. Loisy grabs onto that and runs with it he becomes in a way an arch-Catholic, an arch-advocate of tradition because he says the Catholic Church doesn't need to anchor itself in the New Testament because for one thing, we don't know that much about Jesus. The New Testament isn't that reliable. The Catholic Church is guided by the spirit in what it does and what it proclaims except that in Loazi's mind, it isn't now the Holy Spirit but it is in fact the spirit of the age the zeitgeist in German, the spirit of the time. The Catholic Church is a great and wonderful historical and cultural reality, Wazi says. The church has inspired so many wonderful things in the history of human society. The church embodies a kind of a spirit that is capable of responding to changing needs. We can believe these doctrines and so forth in a certain sense as long as we don't take them very literally and as long as we recognize that they reflect the time in which they were written and so in his own time, the late 19th century, it would be appropriate to express the teachings of Christianity differently than it had been done in the fourth or the fifth centuries. He makes a rather sharp distinction between history and faith We may believe certain things as a matter of faith, such as the fact that Jesus worked miracles or he rose from the dead, but you can't actually invoke the historical evidence of the New Testament to show that. It is, in fact, an act of faith. Lazi wrote many, many books, but this is all set forth in what is regarded as his principal book called The Gospel and the Church uh, that was published in 1902. Lazi, to put it another way, becomes a kind of proponent of what will come to be called religious consciousness we already spoke of historical consciousness and religious consciousness is the idea that there is something fundamental in human nature that is religious meaning what well meaning something that looks for meaning looks for fundamental meaning sees certain harmonies in the universe uh, senses that there is a spiritual reality that cannot be Uh, grasped or explained or measured tends to express itself therefore in symbolic ways something like the cross or holy water or the Eucharist something of that kind this is fundamental to human nature and uh, the Catholic Church does it very well but the big mistake would be in uh, taking this to be too literally believing uh, that it was literal Something else that was going on in France at this time which has a peripheral effect on Oisey but should be borne in mind as part of the context of the time is just before the turn of the century what is called the Dreyfus Affair in which a Jewish army officer named Alfred Dreyfus was accused of being a spy for the Germans and he was put on trial and convicted and sent to prison. And this became the great issue in French political life around 1900 in which again people passionately took sides, one side or the other. The tendency was for the liberals and the secularists to espouse Dreyfus's cause and to see him as a persecuted man and for Catholics and monarchists to believe that he was guilty. Well, in a few years time it was discovered that in fact Dreyfus had been framed. And this tended greatly to discredit the conservative people including Catholic and monarchist who had um, opposed him. And and this is going on in the background while Loisy is writing. Then partly as a result of the Dreyfus case, there comes to power in 1905 a very anti-clerical government, the one that I mentioned earlier, that closes down the Catholic schools and expels the religious orders from France. Now this naturally has a tendency to sharpen once again the antagonism between Catholics and liberals and to put Wazi in a very suspicious light from the point of view of his fellow Catholics as someone who looks like he's consorting with the enemy, the skeptics, the anti-clericals at a time when it looks like the very survival of the church may be at stake. Wazi continues for a few years to function as a priest He is dismissed from his position teaching at the Catholic Institute He then becomes a convent chaplain and he begins to simply spend his time writing Then after a short time he says he ceases to celebrate mass And uh, then after the condemnation of modernism in 1907 He is condemned and he is excommunicated He lives on until 1940 He dies in 1940 just as the Germans are invading France early in World War II. Lived at quite an advanced age. In one of his later memoirs, Loisey says, at the time that all this was going on, there was only one statement of the creed that I believed in, and that was the statement that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. I did not believe any of the others. Now, it should be said, in whatever support one can give Wazi, he thought of himself as actually strengthening and revivifying Catholic faith. He didn't see himself, at least initially, as destroying it. It was the same attitude that Schleiermacher had advanced a hundred years previously. If we go more than halfway to meet the skeptics, if we accept all the new biblical criticism, the higher criticism, all the rest of it, if we admit that the teachings of the Catholic Church are not objectively true, but they have great symbolic value, psychological value if you will, then this will make the Catholic Church much more credible. But of course, church authorities were obviously going to take their stand on the idea, again, that the Catholic faith is historical. And if you deny its historical foundations, then you deny the faith. The second important modernist who is along with Wazi the chief modernist, I think, is a man by the name of George Tyrrell. George Tyrrell was born in Ireland. His family was Protestant. He was first attracted to kind of high church Anglicanism then he was attracted to the Catholic Church and after he is converted to Catholicism almost immediately becomes a Jesuit. But he is pretty unhappy in his life as a Jesuit from the very beginning. One way of seeing Tyrell is to speculate perhaps that his attraction to the Catholic Church had been partly aesthetic. He had been raised in a very low church Protestant environment with very little ritual. He had first been attracted to the beauty of Anglo-Catholic worship, High Church Anglican worship, and then from there to the Catholic Church. Although it does also seem that there was at least a brief period in his life when he considered himself to be very, very orthodox. Tyrell had tremendous problems with Thomism, with Thomistic philosophy and theology, which had again been proclaimed by Leo XIII in 1880 as the official theology of the Catholic Church. To Tyrell, Thomism was only abstract formulas, dry Uh, Devoid of spiritual meaning, irrelevant to life. Formulas which were written down on pieces of paper which people were asked to memorize and yet could not in any way serve a genuine faith. And it seemed to him that everywhere you went you were being forced to sort of conform to Thomism, which the Jesuits had pretty much adopted. It should be said again in fairness to Terrell that there was probably some truth to this. The great revival of Thomism although it's announced in 1880 by Leo XIII doesn't begin to occur until some decades later and the great figures of 20th century Thomism like Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain and others, their work is still distant in the future. And uh, People like Gilson will later say that many of those who have espoused Thomism and talked about it and written about it, didn't fully understand it. And in particular he will say later, Gilson, that of the great richness and profundity of Thomism was often missed. And there is probably some truth to the idea that the Thomism to which Tyrell was exposed was what was sometimes disparagingly called a manual Thomism in which these formulas were written down People didn't read Thomas Aquinas himself, but they read people's redaction of him, and the depth of it was often missed. Nonetheless, one cannot explain Tyrell as simply reacting against the inadequacies of what was available to him at the time. Tyrell takes religious experience as the starting point. It's very similar to Loisy's idea that there is something in human nature that is religious, that historically there have been saints and mystics and others who have obviously been on fire with some vision or other, who have had a strong sense of some higher reality, and that is what is important in religion. And Terrell was extremely negative, became more and more negative towards any kind of creed, any kind of formula Which, as far as he was concerned, was an attempt to capture in a jar, so to speak, something that was alive and vital. Terrell proposed that the test of religious doctrine or religious belief should be practical. That is to say, what implications does it have for one's life? How should one live? and if you can't see any obvious connection then the doctrine is useless. Now he didn't necessarily interpret that in the most reductionistic sense, he didn't necessarily mean that all of Christianity could be reduced let's say to the Sermon on the Mount but again this hostility which became more pronounced as time went on to any great doctrinal statement, any great doctrinal formula the historic creeds once again, the Nicene Creed and all the rest, doctrine of the trinity as abstract and as remote and as having no real relevance to human existence to religious experience. Now he too was quite troubled by what he considered to be lack of historical reliability in the New Testament. He probably did not dismiss it quite as easily as Wazi did. Wazee almost welcomed the idea that the New Testament was not historically reliable. For Tyrell it was a bit of a problem, but he was able to resolve it again through his theory of religious experience, that the Gospels embody the religious experience of those who wrote them, whoever they may have been. And each age embodies its own particular form of religious experience, and we can... Maintain some continuity with the religious experience that is expressed in the New Testament But we should not look upon the New Testament as the Directly divinely inspired Word of God to be accepted in all of its fullness or to be accepted literally Terrell Also was very taken as uh, several of these people were by Charles Darwin's theory of evolution And I said before that there was the conflict between science and religion and then it becomes in a sense the conflict between history and religion. And the theory of evolution in a sense is where the two meet. Darwin publishes The Origin of the Species, a famous book in 1859 in which he proposes that all living beings, all biological beings evolve from lower states of development to higher and more complex states of development. And there is no room in Darwin for the traditional Judeo-Christian notion of creation. It was a doctrine that was highly controversial, of course, from the very beginning. Darwin himself, who at one time had wanted to become a clergyman of the Church of England, as a result of his own theories, ultimately becomes an atheist. Now, uh, not all uh, Orthodox people rejected it. Uh, Newman, for example, seems to have thought the teaching of evolution could be reconciled with authentic Christian teaching. But the thing about the doctrine of evolution, teaching of evolution, was not only that it was scientific and it claimed, therefore, all the authority of science. It's true. We've proved it true. The evidence supports it. You can't deny it. But it was also, of course, a theory that had to do with change. The very nature of the theory of evolution is to say everything changes everything undergoes development nothing remains static and people like Terrell thought that this should be carried over into human thinking human culture and even into religion even into theology evolution is the law of nature uh, there are several different issues involved here closely related people like Loise and Tyrell who were quite accepting of German biblical criticism and were quite willing to say that the New Testament or the rest of the Bible, for that matter, isn't very reliable, might think that they had a way out of that, they might have thought that in the long run it didn't matter, but they did run up against the fact that the Catholic Church officially affirmed the historical character of the scripture and did not uh, permit people to dismiss it by interpreting it in a purely symbolic way or as simply a matter of the development of consciousness. People like Boisi and Tyrell, therefore, became quite frustrated and sometimes angry, especially Tyrell, at what they seem to them to be the pig-headedness of church authorities. If only they would get over this hang-up they have that the Gospels are historically accurate don't they see how they could make the teachings of the church so much more profound and meaningful so also with regard to evolution the Catholic Church did not actually condemn the the Darwinian theory of evolution as some Protestant churches did and as I say there were Orthodox Catholics like Newman who actually accepted it but that wasn't the main issue really it wasn't so much the question of whether one should believe in the seven days of creation so far as Wazi and Terrell were concerned, but it was precisely whether evolution should be taken as the rule of the whole universe, namely again that everything is in the process constantly of development and change, that there really is no such thing as a static reality over long periods of time, and that change is to be embraced and support it because uh, it is again as I say the rule. Terrell found himself increasingly uncomfortable and increasingly controversial within the Jesuit order. Terrell seems to have been in some respects a man hard to get along with. He was troubled by personal demons I think of various kinds which are not very clear but he was unhappy much of the time. He was uh, very, felt out of place almost everywhere that he went. He had originally entered the Society of Jesus with some degree of enthusiasm, but then began to find his fellow Jesuits to be almost intolerable. He tried to do a job with the Jesuits somewhat like he was doing on the scripture, going back and reading the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola and concluding that the original spirit of the Jesuits was quite different from the spirit of the Jesuits of his own day. Only in this case he thought that the later development had been negative and downhill rather than positive. Terrell was transferred around from one Jesuit house to another. His most important book was called Christianity at the Crossroads the title of which of course pretty much explains it all and he saw the church as being in a great crisis crisis literally is a crossroads of course and that the church had to throw in its lot with modernity if it had any hope of surviving. In 1906 Tyrrell is dismissed from the Society of Jesus he goes to live in a little village in England he continues to function as a Catholic priest for another year or so, then he too is communicated in the wake of the condemnation of modernism in 1907. And whereas Loisy lives on to a very great age until 1940, Tyrell dies in 1909, and he does not actually receive a Catholic funeral, but a priest friend of his who was French, and we'll be talking about it in the next episode did come and say a few prayers at the grave. Loisy, at the time of his death in 1940, was totally alienated from Christianity and also had no religious service. These are again uh, the two pioneers of modernism and the two men whose names figure most prominently in the movement. They had some contact with one another, albeit not intimate. They influenced one another. But at the same time, they appeared to be two people who had arrived at their own positions more or less independently of one another, albeit under some of the same influences, such as modern biblical criticism and the Darwinian theory of evolution. Both of them, as I've said, did not see themselves as out to destroy Christianity, but rather as wanting to strengthen it wanting to make it more influential. Getting rid of those things which are incredible to the modern mind and especially an overabundance of literalism and understanding that Christianity is to be approached if you will almost on an aesthetic basis. It's beautiful it's inspirational it's a marvelous vision of reality If you stop to ask whether it's true then you kind of destroy it. You've gotten into the wrong spirit. And of course they again ran up against ecclesiastical authorities who saw this quite correctly as aimed at the very foundations of the Christian faith and that the Christian faith indeed does rest upon the claim of historical truth. Tyrell dying in 1909 And Lozzi, living for another 31 years, had less time to work out the full implications of his position. And Tyrrell was a deeply troubled man in a state of psychological anguish much of the time. He finds himself really almost hating Pope Pius X. He writes the extremely negative, biting comments about the pope. Uh, not only as believing him to be stupid and unenlightened, but considering him to be malevolent, and the office of the papacy to be historically an evil influence in the church. But perhaps because partly of his own personal anxieties, Tyrell, I think, never entirely thought through some of the positions that he was espousing. He had kind of sketched them out, they were rather similar to Loisey's in certain ways. Loisy on the other hand was a more serene character than Tyrell was. He did as I say live for yet another generation beyond Tyrell. This gave Loisy ample opportunity to think through the implications of his own position. And I think Loisy came to see that his problem was with Christianity itself. His remark that he believed nothing in the Creed except that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate in a way this is very much cultural relativism in the sense that I think that Wazi probably would have said well Christianity happens to be the way in which the sense of the divine or the sense of transcendence has expressed itself in Western culture therefore it will be through Christianity that we attempt to keep this alive but that there is no claim which Christianity could make to be superior to better than in any way say Hinduism, Buddhism, and that if one lived in a different culture uh, one would pursue this sense of transcendent meaning through those religious means. It's interesting some of the ecclesiastical background of this period. I mentioned the fact that Tyrell finds his fellow Jesuits intolerable and he gets expelled from the Society of Jesus. We tend today, of course, to think of the Jesuits as being very liberal and we think of Jesuit theologians being the avant-garde and very often in positions of opposition to the Pope. But that was not true a hundred years ago. The Jesuit order had been suppressed at the end of the 18th century for complicated political reasons. When it was re-established in 1814 the Jesuits took very, very seriously their traditional fourth vow of fidelity to the Pope, and they took very seriously their idea as defenders of orthodoxy. And they still maintained in many respects, the spirit of the Counter-Reformation, of intellectual combat, of militant defense of orthodoxy. So uh, it's rather an interesting historical phenomenon that here we find during the period of the modernist crisis hardly a Jesuit uh, with the exception of Terrell who is tarred with the brush of modernism and uh, the Jesuits by and large being arrayed on the opposite side as militant defenders of orthodoxy. It's also often been said by the defenders of the modernists that they were subjected to a reign of terror and we will see more of that in a later lecture. But there's an interesting event in Wazi's life which should be noted, and that is that while all this controversy was going on, the Prince of Monaco, the ancestor of the present Prince Rainier, who was married to Grace Kelly, told Wazi that he was going to nominate him to be the Bishop of Monaco. And for a time it seemed as though actually the appointment might be made because Episcopal appointments at this time often did come about through political intervention. And if the Prince of Monaco had been able to carry that off, it would have put Loisey into a very interesting position. It would have given him a certain amount of protection against his criticism. How would he have functioned as a Catholic bishop being as deeply imbued with doubts as he was? that incident, the fact that he was quite willing to accept the appointment had it come, which it didn't, it seems to me does cast some doubt on his integrity. And there seems to be no doubt that Luazi was less than candid during the first decade here of the 20th century in stating publicly uh, how far and how deep his doubts actually extended. I should say one other thing. I, I mentioned the Jesuits here as representing still in many ways the spirit of the Counter-Reformation. One aspect of liberal Catholicism uh, that had arisen at the end of the 19th century was to criticize the so-called fortress mentality that I was talking about earlier. To say, look, the age of conflict is over, the age of controversy is over, we don't have to be looking for enemies. The church should cease being defensive, put down the drawbridges, let's enter into dialogue and discussion with the modern world. That the defensive posture of the Counter-Reformation has served us very badly. And what one thought of that would of course depend very much on one's practical evaluation of the situation in which you found yourself. It seems to me that those like the modernists and some of the other liberal Catholics who were calling for an end of the siege mentality were engaging to a considerable extent in wishful thinking that any clear-eyed observer, and it seems to me any historian looking back on it today, would have to say that if anything, the attacks on the church were more numerous, more severe, more dangerous at the end of the 19th century than they had been earlier. Protestantism itself had ceased to be the problem for the most part. It was now a deeper kind of hostility, a hostility that was embodied politically in the liberal, secular, anti-clerical state, and a hostility that was embodied intellectually in philosophies which were openly atheistic, materialistic, anti-religious. Loisy and Tyrell, it seems to me, were insensitive or naive or whatever you want to call it, in not understanding the context in which all this was taking place, in which it looked quite clearly to those in authority that they were making common cause with the enemies of the church. And in a certain sense, they were, whether or not that was what they intended to do. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.